Open your Bibles again, please, to James, and we're at chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 14 through 26. James 2. As I read through this, I'd ask you to make a mental note of some of the words that James uses, a matter of repetition. And obviously, anytime things are repeated, it's for an important reason. Um, it'll help us, and as it was his intent, to drive home uh, the theme uh, of this book and of, of, of the rest of, of the area. So let's pray first. Father, thank you again for the joy that we have as your children to come before uh, you and ask and trust in faith that you will lead us to a better understanding of this your word. Thank you for um, its preservation. Thank you for the truth and light that has shined upon those original intended recipients and through every generation as this practical book has been uh, read and studied and preached upon and applied, your name be lifted up. We ask, Father, to give us clarity of mind, uh, those mental distractions that all too often creep in will be just set aside. You'll put a hedge about it and keep us from such wanderings. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 14, what does the prophet, my brethren, though man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. A man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O man, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then, how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she, was received, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Did you catch any words that were... Kind of rumbling on there. Two dominated, didn't it? Faith and works. Faith and works. 
I think the Moltrips would have had another child, you know, maybe a, you would have called them works, you know. This is our children, faith and works, you know. No? Maybe not. Uh, matter of faith here, it's mentioned uh, along with the word believe 15 times. And come to works, 12 times. Uh, Repeat it again and again in combination. But you'll also note, maybe you didn't quite pick it up, it's important to see that salvation is mentioned only once and justification three times. And that's purposeful because James is not dealing with talking about a faith that saves. Paul talks about that. We're saved by grace through faith. But he's talking about the identification, the clarification of what faith is. What does it look like? How does it display itself? How is it revealed? What is true and genuine faith? I shared with you some weeks ago how I grew up in what we call a Christian home. We were com- comfortable in saying that. We were regular church attenders from my earliest days. My father was an officer within the church. We had all the accessories of being Christians. As a young teen I, teen, I completed confirmation class with my peers. It was a part of the regular process. Our family were faithful in our attendance to all of the events and our participation in whatever activities the church offered. So I guess I could probably refer to those things as my faith and works, if it was ever asked, you know, as that display. It was enough for me that when I headed out of home into the world on my own, I was comfortable to say, I'm a Christian, although not necessarily people ask me that. Well, advance the timetable and Millie and I are married, and we return to the U.S., and we settle down in a little uh, single-wide trailer up in Whidbey Island, Washington. And one day, you know, there's a knock on the door. And there are a couple of guys coming, and and they were very nicely dressed. Um, Didn't didn't have little name tags on, so don't think that. Um, And they just wanted to talk. They were introducing themselves, and come to find out they were from a local Bible-believing church visiting their, our little trailer park there and just kind of making themselves known. And so we let them in. Um, and in so many words, they basically were inviting us to their church. And in so many words, asking me, was I a Christian? Did I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? I don't necessarily remember the words that they said, but I remember the fear and trepidation that came upon me because, number one, I really didn't like being receiving something that I didn't quite understand. And so I fell back on my old faith and works. I remember telling them that I'm a member of such and such a church. And I did that, da, 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 you know, and uh, just kind of explained the whole spiel. Yet, I didn't think about the fact that I hadn't been to my home church, or to any church for that matter, in eight years. (laughs) You know, much less thinking anything spiritual, because I had convinced myself that what I had, at least up to that point, was sufficient. That what I had believed, what I uh, had made affirmation to or attested to, the things that I had done, I felt good enough that that was 
spiritually, what would get me through in life. That was enough. Well, it took another three years before I really found out that that type of faith was a sham. I was deceiving myself into believing that what I had was real and it wasn't. It was a false and worthless faith that would profit me nothing and it was taking me straight to hell. Although I didn't know it at the time. If you recall back in our study in James 1.22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And how does the verse finish? Deceiving your own selves. Well, I was a doer of the word, but it was the word that I made up, you know. <laughs> it was a word that I had projected to be the word, but it wasn't real. Hence, I had gone the whole nine yards, and hence I was deceiving myself. As we come to verse 14 in our text this morning, I want us to note that this is a most powerful verse. It takes really the, the fulcrum of the whole text that remains here. It continues on the theme of James 1, the matter of living a life of faith, which you will find uh, if the Lord tarries and we make it through, uh, we'll find this throughout the entire book. What does faith, that is genuine, saving faith, look like? And so James begins here, in verse 14, with a series of questions in order to draw us out, to draw us in, draw his recipients in, to help them ask themselves the questions about those things that are real. And you know, good questions help clarify things, don't they? You know, when there's a lot of talk going on, somebody can come up and just say, Here's a question. Answer this. And this is exactly what James does. What does it profit? My brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? What good is it if a man to claim? And, and, and the text here is saying, continues to proclaim, continues to say, I have faith, I have faith. But he says, and has not works. In other words, he continues to display no works whatsoever. But the key to this verse is, can that faith, or does it have, the word in here is dunamis, power. Does that kind of faith have the power to save him? Can it do anything for him? Can it, can, can it really bring him before God? Is it capable of saving I had memorized the books of the Bible. I could recite the Apostles' Creed, name all the disciples. My confirmation class had completed. I could take communion in the church. As a part of the youth fellowship, we had Youth Sunday. And I don't know how I did it, but I was asked to give a sermon. I had to write out something, a 10-minute sermon, you know. I, that's kind of a black black spot in my brain, you know, but nevertheless, again, that was my faith and works. I, I can mark it down. This is a part of my history, but it was passive. It was intellectual only, and to be honest, it was fruitless. Those things that I attributed to a Christian life produced nothing. Not too many years ago, pastor friend of Millie and I, um, evening, Sunday evening services were a little less formal, a little more casual, and 
and pastor came up to the pulpit to start the service and he had kind of a little chuckle on his face and he had to explain what it was all about. And so for Sunday evening, he comes in early and he gets the lights going and he gets the temperature adjusted and sound system on and so forth. And, and the, uh, the communion table had a uh, bouquet of flowers, you know, and, and he says, water the flowers, you know, and, and things like that. And he says, you know, I came in, and I had my, my thing of water, and I go to put it in. And then he says, after I'm pouring water, and he says, they're artificial, <laughs> you know. <laughs> he says, I'm pouring the water in the artificial flowers. And he says, I just roared about that. They had all the earmarks of being real. They had color. They had feel. They had just, just, just identical duplicates but they couldn't grow, they had no fragrance, they couldn't produce anything because they weren't real. And that's exactly what James is talking about. All of the earmarks visibly of being real, but there's no fruit, there's no display, there's no works, there's no deeds. That should be a natural byproduct of being there. Jesus understood this quite clearly. Uh, part of his Sermon on the Mount, um, the verse I begin with, I think, is real telltale. He says, wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. And that's you was used an awful lot when he was describing the scribes and the Pharisees and how they acted or reacted. But I think in general, it's a powerful statement. By the fruit, by the fragrance, by the growth. You know, he says, but not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now you would think somebody who's saying, calling upon the name of the Lord, saying, you know, Jesus. Why, they must be Christians. He says, but he that doeth the will of my father, a doer of the word, not just a hearer only, who doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied on thy name? Wow, that's taking a position of responsibility. I'm prophesying in the name of God. You know, I'm, I'm standing for him. Uh, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. When we think of good deeds, good works, haven't we done them all? And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me ye that work iniquity. I don't know you. There's a relationship that faith should establish. That I know him, he knows me, and out of that works are produced. And Jesus says, in the world in which we live, there are many who say, I know you. And he says, who are you? You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't have any idea. Those who merely say that they have saving faith, but who live for themselves are deceived. No matter how insistent they may be, no matter how valid they may say, this is the time that I profess Jesus as my Savior, there needs to be some evidence of fruit, of a work, a good deed that's being produced. Things that they have accomplished ends up being a false faith that doesn't save anyone. 
book of 1 John deals with false professions. Uh, I remember my very first class, I did a correspondence course after I was saved, and, and the one chapter was professors or believers. You know, professors, right? Talk about teachers, you know? Those who just profess with their mouth. Um, John gives us two examples. The first one in uh, 1 John 1, 6, he states, if we say that we have fellowship with him, I make a profession that I am in relationship to the living God. I have fellowship. You know, I'm connected with him. Fellowship with the living God by faith and walk. In other words, my lifestyle in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. John's saying that if I'm making a profession of a relationship with the living God, but my lifestyle is absolutely in darkness, which is opposite of the light of the gospel, I'm lying. I've deceived myself, and I'm deceiving others by such a very action. First uh, John 2, 4. He that saith, I know him. I know Jesus. You know? Surveys in abundance today. And, and again, the Pew Research Institute and, and many others have done that. You know? and, and, and we've, I've shared many of them with you before. But you know, how many of these people profess to know Jesus Christ? You know, da, 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 and that comes down and, 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 and how they end up believing in the this, and they end up believing in this, and, and they believe in this, and, you know, things that are absolute opposite of what the Scripture teaches. If they say, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He says, what I profess with my mouth needs to be in line with what the Scripture says. Not because I'm trying to be legalistic and obey the law, but because God has put it in my heart to make that change. I can't do it on my own. The point is, throughout Scripture, the same. Saving faith results in a changed life. Good deeds, good works, righteous living. False faith is an empty profession, absent of good deeds. Remember, It is not just hearing the word, but doing it as it's being presented. So how does this take place? How do do the change occur? We're trying to analyze somebody by what they say and the actions that they're doing and such and such. Actually, God has a great hand in it. Prophet Ezekiel writes, A new heart. Also will I give you. This isn't the prophet saying it. This is God himself. He's talking to Israel. A new heart will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. How do I make the change? I couldn't. None of us could. But he put a new heart in us. We become new creatures in Christ. And all of a sudden, those things that I desired that were a part of the old man, I start to say, I no longer have a taste for that. 
I no longer desire that. Those people that used to participate, hey, Coleman, why don't you come on? on? It's all right, you know, I, I just can't do it. It doesn't mean I've mastered it. It doesn't mean that any of us have mastered it. But it means that he's put a new heart in us, a, a, a flesh heart, stony heart gone, and the Spirit of God can take that fleshly heart and move it and shape it the way he desires. Here's the salvation that God promised to give to a restored Israel. That's what Ezekiel is saying. Israel, wake up! You're out here you know, sacrificing your babies, and you're out here bowing down to Ashtaroth, Baal, and all these other things. You know, but you repent, God will give you a heart that will change. But here is also the salvation that is the birthright of every Christian believer. It is what we are bound. We're born again. He says, I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. And the Spirit of God will make you change. So what should be seen in the believer's life? What good deeds and what works should be evidenced if the faith that I profess profess is genuine? Look back in your text, if you would, starting at verse 15. And again, just as a reminder, note the questions that he presents to them and to us. And they're, they're kind of rhetorical in the sense that, uh, you know, it should be obvious. And we're going to take these down through verse 20, and you'll see that this is nothing but dead faith. Verse 15. If a brother or sister, all right, brother or sister, not blood relation, but we're talking about Christians. If a fellow Christian be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Faith without the accompanying works is as profitable as telling a naked Starving Christian, oh, I'm going to pray for you. Be happy. Be warm. Fill your belly. That's, that's ridiculous. But that's as ridiculous as pres- presuming that a cold, dead faith is a saving faith. There must be a natural progression for my salvation to do those things that God has placed within my heart that are right and just. Verse 18, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Ever seen those bungee things off of bridges? No, you twist your face up. That just means you're, you don't want to do that. I looked at the record, it's close to 750 feet. Can you imagine that? Tying a huge rubber band to your ankles and saying, yoo-hoo, all the way over the edge, you know? I just, you know, 
Mama has a hard time getting up on the little rides where her, her feet hang over the edge, you know, little kitty rides, you know. But can you imagine going to this bridge and you're 700 and some feet over the edge and you come and you examine the facility, you know, check the steel out, no rust or anything like that. You see the people that are there, they know what they're doing. You, you pull this big bungee thing up and it's huge, you know. All the rubber bands seem to be good. You check it from top to bottom, all the way down. You check the harness. You see all of these things like this. And he says, man, this is, this is absolutely fantastic. You know, you know, this thing will go again and again. And even watch somebody, you know, do it again. Boy, this is, this is perfect, you know. I, I have all trust in the world in this. Then you turn around and you walk away and they can hear you mumbling, not in a million years, you know. I have faith intellectually because I've examined it intellectually. I've touched. I've asked all the right questions. But to put it to practice, no. Hence, I don't have saving faith. You come to the auditorium here and you says, I have faith that these chairs will hold me up. And there's no reason why they shouldn't. But just stand through the entire service because you're really not sure that these chairs will hold you up. It's a matter of putting my faith to practice. Is God able? Of course he is. The relationship of my heart, though, to what he tells me and what he shows me are sometimes quite different. Remember the story of Jesus and the disciples getting out of the boat to the Sea of Galilee? I think it's Gersinius, and they've just rowed across the other side, and they're met by demonic. And some of the Gospels say two. One comes down, and he's just whacking away, you know. Um, in Luke's account, in Luke 8, uh, we read, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. Here's the demonic world, much more powerful than we. And yet he says, James says, thou believest in one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But they're not saved. They have an intellectual understanding and it shows in an obeisance to God, to Jesus Christ. They recognize his power. They know what he can do. Cast these demons into the swines that we may go out like this. They know who Christ is. But their hearts are as hardened as can be and their works cannot show it. The demonic world. But thou... But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? James did not leave his readers hanging here, though, because he describes in the rest of the chapter a living faith. From 15 on through 20, it's a dead faith. And those rhetorical questions just kind of haunt it. Um, uh, is this right? Is this right? And everybody's sitting there shaking their head. No, no, that can't be. But now he comes around and he shows the other side. Um, these are the first verses I actually had memorized in uh, my life. 
pastor had a thing on Wednesday nights. He says, I want everybody to memorize at least two verses, and I'll call to you, you know, during the service, and I want you to give that verse. I'm like, <laughs> memorize, you know. So I did Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but I left off verse 10. Uh, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And verse 10 is, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Paul is not saying that my good works are of any value, but he's saying that which is natural, coming from Christ, put within me, will produce good works. But they're not my good works. Every time there's a good work that comes out of me, I have to say, come back, because I am his workmanship. I was created in Christ because Christ has enabled me to do it. Christ brought it to pass. That's why all of the praise and the glory goes to him. You remember the parable of the vine and the branches. He says, there is the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he says, you cannot produce fruit unless you remain attached to the vine, unless there's a connection with Christ. I produce fruit, cut them off, it still looks like the vine, but it's not going to produce anything. And so it is with us, our fruit production. One author writes it this way, in sum, the good deeds that James is calling for to to validate one's faith as genuine, are deeds which the Spirit initiated and empowered and which brings glory to God the Father. No matter how hostile the society around us may be, we are to be good people in those lives that intersect with ours. That's the good deed. He says, if he's done this for me, then he intends for me to accomplish those deeds that he's accomplished with. So he gives two examples, Rahab and Abraham, uh, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Again, when we talk about justified and saved here, he's not talking about the stand before God. That's already been proven. He's talking about the fruit that's produced of a saving faith by a work. Seest how, verse 22, faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect or complete. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that you see how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. God told Abraham to do what? His only son. Think how old he had, how many years he had waited. Even after the promise was given unto him. Finally Isaac comes and finally Isaac grows and finally he continues to, to develop and see the young man that he intended him to be. And God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to take this your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. So when God told Abraham of that sacrifice, Abraham believed that God knew what he was doing. He believed that he had a plan for Isaac 
and for Abraham and for the kingdom. And whether it would be filled at that moment or later on, it didn't matter because Abraham believed that God would raise the dead if necessary. And so Abraham acted by faith and he accredited, put into his bank account, that action in God's hands. It's the only way you could look at it. The other example he gives is Rahab. Likewise, verse 25, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and when had sent them out another way? Rahab's story is a long one and an exciting one if you'd like to read through that particular episode of the Old Testament. But Rahab believed that God had said and that he would do what he had said that he was going to give the promised land to his descendants. And that's exactly how she acted. She responded. She also believed that God would save her. He could and he would save her and her family as they had seen the great destruction that was coming. And so to great physical risk, she hid the spies, tied the scarlet cord upon her window as was instructed. And God provided the answer. It's not enough to say that we believe. It's not enough to say that I'm a Christian. To call myself such, it's not even enough to say I intellectually believe. I've gone through the mental process and it all makes sense. I've, I've checked out the cord. I've tied the ends. I've seen this and that. It makes sense. But it's much more than that. We need a faith that shows itself to be courageous in obedience and charity and in good works. This is display, and I can't do it on my own, but this is what God does within us. I think it begins when we take a concrete step in making Christ Jesus our Lord and Master. There's always the question, you know, about that. You know, have you made Jesus your Savior and the Lord? You know, and there's kind of a division, but I look at it as saying he's my Savior, but there's a surrendering daily to make him my daily responsible Master, the Lord of my life, you know. I have that assurance. I know the things that I've done, more than intellectual, but because my heart's made new and afresh, but I'm still being yanked this way to, to, to live in the world that I'm, I'm living in. So I want him to be my master in the decisions of my life and the choices that I have to make. Talking with my son this week, he says, Dad, there are a number of things that I've continued to learn on a daily process. He says, through at our business, he says, there are times and I come along and I ask the, they've got about five employees, and he says, I ask the lady who's in charge for the billing for the end of the month, and he says, how much do we need? And he says, well, we need mm, 1,000. You know, he says, okay, how much do we got? Mm, not that much, you know? And he says, Lord, and he says, I don't worry about it. He says, I just trust you. He says, the next day I come in, he says, here's what came in, and it was, you know, X number of dollars over what was needed. He says, I just had to trust him and act and do according, not that, not that I didn't believe that he couldn't, but he said, this is a daily process. And he says, now I take that very thing and I put it back within my family. And he says, the children are there and they're learning that God did this. God was responsible for this. You know? And that's where, and, and I'm seeing God's providential hand I wasn't raised like that because my family came from a different direction. We were spiritual people, 
But we were not, you know, living a life of faith. We were Christians, but we were missing that very action. The Lord Jesus bids us to come to follow him, to open the doors of our hearts, and to have him say to me, I'm willing to come in and make you, the, my child is, is, is a servant. And we have to ask them to do that. We have to say, Lord, um, my saving faith brings me to a place of works and actions because I want to be obedient to you. I think that makes the difference in all of our lives where we interact in business, on the, on the road, in, 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 in every aspect of life. That's how the world will see that we are different. Let's pray. Father, you're the searcher of all hearts, and you know who we are. You know our end from our beginning. You've seen uh, fit to take this uh, portion of this little letter that has been read by countless millions and millions of people around the face of the world uh, over, the, over the centuries and, and has profited to bring men and women and boys and girls to a better understanding of what it is to live a life of faith. That our faith that we say we profess and the relationship that we have with the living God is one that should be finding out good works, righteous living, actions that clearly reflect such a relationship with you. It's your desire, and we're thankful for your patience with us. We're thankful for your long-suffering. We're thankful for the way that your mercies uh, are showered upon us, and your grace daily comes into our life, and that we stand in awe. And when each day concludes, as we rehearse what has gone on, if there has been anything good, anything accomplished, even through our entire life, Anything that was good and profitable, it's all to your glory and all to your credit. And those things that have been failures, miserable as they may have been, uh, we take responsibility for them and we, we confess them to you. Uh, thank you, Father, for working in us and continuing to do so because you're faithful uh, and by faith we believe that in his name. Amen. <laughs>